You're listening to No Filter, a 2FM collective podcast. Hello, I'm Louise Makshari and welcome to No Filter. This is the podcast that features extraordinary women with extraordinary stories. In this episode, I speak to Una Malali. Una Mullally is a journalist best known for her regular work for the Irish Times and her work as one of the public faces of the marriage equality campaign. She writes about important issues facing the people of Ireland and often specifically the women of Ireland as well as the LGBT community. I know her to be warm and funny and thoughtful and I was delighted to get the opportunity recently to quiz her about how she came to be the badass journalist she is today as well as how she managed to get through her work on the marriage equality campaign while simultaneously being treated for cancer. However, we started at the very beginning, where in the world she comes from. I'm from the Dean's Grange Massive, uh, no man's land of South County Dublin, which is grand, just like suburban land, has a graveyard and car dealerships. <laughs> I am the youngest in my family. I have two older sisters and one older brother. Do you think where you came in your family had an influence on who you are, or do you think it's it's just a matter of individuality developing on its own? I think of course it does. Like, I definitely think that where you come in, in your family impacts stuff. I mean, I guess like I'm kind of naturally attention seeking so I think that's a classic youngest person thing. Yeah but I'm the oldest and I'm a massive attention seeker. Yeah I guess we just look for traits that are preset and those kind of things and then try and crowbar our own personalities into them yeah. like horoscopes or <laughs> yeah. something. I had a very average upbringing like my dad was a teacher and my mum actually the only thing that was different about it is my mum worked for all of her life in the airline industry she worked for Aer Lingus and then she worked for TWA and Japan Airlines and British West Indian Airlines and Gulf Air and stuff so the thing that was different for a family that's you know kind of like lower middle class socioeconomically <laughs> was we got to travel a lot uh, mm. on standby for free because cool. my mum worked for airlines so that was that's the only remarkable thing I think in my childhood. So how did you come to journalism? I think I always wanted to be a journalist. I do remember telling my sixth class teacher when she asked everybody what they're going to be I said a journalist. I don't know why I said that I was probably trying to impress her or something (laughs) Um, and so yeah that was that decision made when I was about 11 or 12. Gotta get ahead of these things I suppose. (laughs) And then I did journalism in DCU. I did the four year BA which is now three year BA and um, I was working for different publications while I was in college mostly the event guide Um, so my background would very much be in music journalism and then yeah, I remember your blog, Una Rocks. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, okay. <laughs> and then I got an internship in the Tribune and became a news reporter. And how old were you when you got your column in the Tribune? I'm guessing I was 23, 24. It was the front column of the yeah. Tribune magazine. And did it feel like a big deal to have a column at that age at the time? It did. It really did. But it also felt. Like I knew it was going to happen. You know, I was very arrogant, you know, in my 20s. And I kind of felt that, you know, I had these certain things. I was like, you know, I'm going to be a columnist in a national newspaper and that's what I'm going to do. And that's just going to happen. And, you know, in the following years, when stuff like The Secret and all that kind of stuff came out and people would be talking about that idea of like manifesting things or, you know, visualizing things, you know, I, I didn't really have any 
uh, understanding of that vocabulary or those thoughts but it's something that I had done instinctively all of my life you know you can analyse why that is whether it's all based on like self-worth or like crippling insecurity or whatever but that's kind of been my MO professionally I think I still really admire people who take the initiative and try and make things happen for themselves because it's not something that comes naturally to me Mm. so it's really interesting to me that that kind of comes naturally to you yeah and I think it does I don't know where it's from like I I would have been closest to um, my brother when I was growing up and he's two years older than me and I think growing up in proximity to like an older male sibling maybe kind of made me see myself in a similar light so like obviously young guys don't have an issue with like asking for things or blah 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 and so I would have just been hanging out with him playing football and and was treated the same as all the Mm. other boys on the estate or whatever Mm. I think that probably created this weird confidence maybe or just entitlement (laughs) I don't know No I think it sounds like confidence Yeah Yeah I think my confidence can be off-putting for people as well or it can be conceived as like being up myself or being arrogant or whatever but at the same time like I'm not going to pretend to be oh I'm just so stupid and here by mistake you know because I know that I, I work really hard like you know I have a really strong work ethic and as well as that I feel like so many women do make those apologies and, yeah. and a lot of the time you hear this stuff about like oh you know well women are the problem too they don't push themselves and they hold themselves back and la 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 and I'm out here saying no we're not actually if you do feel confident and you feel like you're going to you're able to do something do it I don't mm. care what gender you are or whatever I'm not going to be part of that narrative because mm. I don't think it's helpful Okay so you start started in the Tribune, you had your column, you were writing a lot about music and kind of pop culture, I think. Now you write for the Irish Times yeah. and you write about lots of different things. You write about politics, you write about uh, government policy on housing, you write about sexism, you write about uh, women in media, mm-hmm. you write about loads and loads and loads of different things. And one thing, obviously, which you absolutely owned was the marriage referendum. Mm. Well, I think that's an exaggeration, but go on. I wanted to ask you about that experience because you were writing about it as a journalist, but you were also experiencing it as a human being, as a gay woman. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, it's. I think that, you know, a lot of LGBT people might have a similar experience to me and that I still have a good bit of PTSD around it. It was very stressful time for the most part. It was not pleasant I think it's it's legitimate to, to say that it was it was very difficult and it wasn't pleasant and it was very stressful I mean it was also very heartwarming and galvanizing and all of those things for me like you know my queer family men women trans people whatever who are like my friends and my you know people I lived with and dated and hung out with and whatever you know that that group of people is so important to me as the broader LGBT community is for me it's about us it was about us getting through it supporting each other going out there on Tuesday nights when it was pissing rain and canvassing and being there for each other and crying with each other and bolstering each other and doing it for each other and ourselves and our broader community and and that's what I take away from it and I you know I'll always just remember you know that love and and that strength and that connection that we all had with each other so that's kind of what it it means to me and what it meant to me at the time you know ultimately it was an extraordinary experience but the graft of it I found really really testing and I suppose compounded by the fact that I was diagnosed with cancer in the middle of it you know so I I find it very hard to separate the two things like when I think of the referendum campaign those you know three months or whatever I also think of being diagnosed with cancer 
going through chemo and radiation, blah, like it's all, it's so embedded. You know, I, I finished my chemo and my radiation the day of the vote, right? Yeah. So they're both so mashed in together that when I think about it, it's just this really bizarre period of my life that I think I'm still recovering from. And I, well, certainly physically, I'm still recovering from it. But mentally, in terms of the referendum stuff, I think I'm only really admitting to myself now how difficult it was. What did it feel like to be one of the voices of the campaign? Did you feel... Now, this actually kind of comes back to what we were talking about before. Did you feel any kind of fear or like the weight of that responsibility? Or did you just feel confident that you were the right person to be, say, on TV doing debates I felt a lot of pressure I felt under a huge amount of pressure I didn't necessarily propel myself into that position but in a way I kind of did I think I like I always knew that when the referendum came around I was going to have to write the personal column about being a lesbian and what this would mean to me to try and win some more people over to vote yes I just didn't know that what I was going to end up writing personally was going to be way more dramatic I don't write about my personal life but the piece I ended up writing was also you know talking about my cancer diagnosis and and how these two things were interlinked in terms of like self-worth and self-value and how you view how your country values you and you know worried that I was going to die and all of those things and that also happened to be the week which I didn't know that the Late Late Show were going to be doing their big Late Late Show referendum debate and so those kind of two things again you know these all these weird coincidences So that kind of was what happened. I don't really get nervous before doing things, speeches or TV stuff or whatever. But the Late Late Show debate, I was like shitting myself. Yeah. <laughs> and was it the Late Late Show or was it the feeling that there was a lot at stake? I thought there was a huge amount at stake. Like I, like I know how important those moments are in terms of media in referenda campaigns mm-hmm. or elections or whatever. Like I know that you know, those can be the things that like turn things a little bit. So I I knew there was a lot at stake. I was also really sick that week in particular. Sarah, my girlfriend, was really like, not that she was against me doing it, but she didn't want me to do it at all because I was just not physically capable in retrospect. I knew there was a lot at stake and I felt really nervous and really, I just felt like I was going out there with all the expectations of my friends, you know, on my shoulders and I just wanted to do right by them you know I Mm. wanted to do right by the queer people that I know like you know my lesbian friends with kids or my gay boys with boyfriends who wanted to get engaged like that that's what I was thinking about I was like I cannot screw this up for Mm. for my friends and I was just so lucky that Colm O'Gorman was there and he just Mm. played an absolute blinder and I think we did a good job I mean I think maybe the campaign was already won by then but it didn't hurt that we did a good job that night absolutely not when I think about the referendum there is a photograph of you and Colm on the day and I don't know if you're crying but he's hugging you and your head is like buried in his chest yeah and for me that is the image that I always think of Mm. because I find it really hard to look at that I bet yeah because I cannot imagine and we'll talk more about cancer in a minute but I cannot imagine being in that cancer experience which obviously I've had Mm -hmm. different but uh, you know a cancer experience I've had and having to pull everything that you have inside of you every bit of energy every bit of physical strength that you possibly can together to do something as emotionally taxing as campaigning for that referendum and then it being over what did that feel like it was really weird i remember what happened was on the friday which was the vote i went and voted and um 
I kind of started breaking down that day. The Times were doing a photo outside the where I was voting on Pier Street and I kind of started breaking down and started crying and everything. Then we had to go to Stony Batter to vote where Sarah was registered. And then I had to go into hospital to get my pick line out, which was the line that goes into your arms. It's above your heart where you get your chemo put in. And then I went back to my house. I was living on Camden Street at the time with my friend Vicky. Basically then, it was you know, we started listening to all the ports and we knew that if there was high turnout, it would, it would be good. And so, you know, all that was seeping in and people all texting around, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, just people started calling over to the house, you know, kind of unorganised. Loads of friends who'd flown home you know, from Turkey and San Francisco and all over the place, you know, loads of people who come over from the UK. And and basically what ended up is that we ended up kind of having a bit of a party. So I got like pretty drunk. Mm-hmm. And so then the morning of the actual result, I was kind of hung over. Mm-hmm. I also hadn't really slept and I went to the count centre and I just didn't feel anything. Like I just felt really unemotional. It was like clear that we'd won. I was like, OK, this is really weird. And then I had to work. So I was like, went over to a hotel near the count centre in the Wordy Ass and started filing copy and I was being real ratty and like grumpy and stuff. And I was like, what's going on? And then we went into Dublin Castle and that's when I was like, okay, this is, I can't believe this is happening. This is so surreal. This is such a weird thing with these thousands of people like in the castle grounds and it's like this beautiful day. I remember doing a radio interview with Claire Byrne and I started crying on air. I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. (laughs) And then Colin was like, tried to get me up on stage. I was like, no. And then he got me up and then I just kind of looked at everyone and I just completely collapsed. And that's when I, yeah, when I just kind of broke down then. So when I see that photo as well, like of me just like weeping into Colin McGorman's chest, I get really emotional because I'm like, I was just in bits. Well, I mean, let's talk about the cancer because as I said, we've both been there. Um, Mm -hmm. But I had, and I'm not making light of it at all but like I had what a lot of people refer to as the best cancer you can have yeah Hodgkin's lymphoma you got cancer before me though yeah and but Hodgkin's like it responds really well to chemo I didn't have to have any surgery that's not the case for everyone but like I had a really straightforward experience with it that was not the case for you no I was diagnosed with stage three bowel cancer and just to give people an idea just in case you don't know and I most people know because we all experience it as a family member as a friend or whatever but like there's four stages and if you have stage four cancer you're basically yeah it's terminal yeah yeah so yeah so I was diagnosed I thought I had like IBS or something so I got a colonoscopy and they found a tumour which was a shock obviously and at that stage they didn't know whether or not it was terminal or not so I took a week uh, which was hell definitely the strangest week of my life um, and then the, the following week I went in and they were like, no, it's stage three, we can treat it. So that was amazing. Yeah, so then I just basically started this insane process where you just kind of give up your body and let other people do stuff to it yeah. in not a fun way. So I had chemo for six weeks and radiation for daily for six weeks. My chemo was pretty mild. I had, I think it's called 5FU. And it, that was a chemo transfusion that I wore 24-7. Yeah, so I would go in and I was on yeah, a drip. I'd go in stuff. every two weeks on a drip for a yeah. few hours and then I'd go. Yeah, that's the hard stuff. Yeah. Um. So I didn't lose my hair or anything like that. Now, how did you feel about that? Like kind of secretly raging. I just feel like <laughs> if you were going to get chemo, you know. Yeah, I would have felt the same. That's why I asked you. Yeah, and I was just like, oh. And then when people would be like, be like, oh yeah, no, I'm getting chemotherapy. And they're like, oh, but you haven't lost your hair. And we're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because not all chemo, not all chemo does make you lose your hair. Hashtag not all chemo. Yeah, right. Um, and also some people take the chemo that is meant to make you lose your hair and, and they and don't lose their hair. I tell you what though, 
turn my hair straight. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it did some weird things like that. It also gave me some peripheral nerve damage in yeah. my fingers. I have a, little, a tiny bit of that. Yeah, so yeah. kind of like drop things. And it kind of messed my taste buds. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of dull my taste buds or whatever. Oh, I probably annoying. did loads of other things, but it wasn't severe. But you see, I don't know. Like, I, I did get like, I had to go off it for four or five days or something actually right after the Late Late Show because I was really sick for, it made me really sick I got colitis and stuff yeah. like that so then I was doing radiation as well the impact of the radiation has been far more severe and ongoing and then I had to have my surgery so I had big giant operation where they just removed like loads of my bits and then also at the same time during that operation I also had to have a hysterectomy in my ovaries removed which was probably the hardest part of it all Physically um, or mentally, I think. Mentally, yeah. Um, I mean, they said that I was probably going to be infertile, and I'm like, okay, I can deal with that or whatever. I didn't want to have kids anyway, so you know, it was not as big a deal to me as it would have been to somebody who wanted kids. And they gave me the option to freeze my eggs, but that was going to delay treatment, and mm. I didn't want to delay treatment, whatever. So I was mm. just like, no, I'll just deal with that. And then after the radiation, they were like, oh yeah, well, you know, your uterus is just like fritzed or whatever, so you wouldn't be able to carry a child anyway. And I was like, oh, well, that's that decision made. Also went into menopause, which is really difficult. Everything that was happening with it was like, worse again, worse again. Mm. And then they basically said, okay, we're going to have to take out your uterus and like we might be able to leave one ovary um, if we can move it out of the way or whatever so I was like right and then when I went to the obstetrician gynecologist whatever she was just like sign this form for taking everything out floping tubes ovaries blah and I was just like oh my god that was the, one of the worst days it's just really hard like mentally just like being like oh my god my youth my virility has been taken away that was that's very so difficult. interesting given the fact that you said that you kind of already knew you didn't want kids so it yeah, wasn't about it was, reproducing so much as no, it was about I think it was more linked to my sense as a woman mm. you know my sense of what that means and obviously gender is categorized by various things one of them being you know the biological presence of reproductive organs or whatever and so even you know now it's like at the March for Choice recently, you know, and it's like, get your rosaries off our ovaries. And I'm like, in my head, I don't have ovaries. <laughs> I don't have those. Yeah. Your placard is triggering me. No, it's no, not. No, but that's really interesting because there is this massive conversation around uh, trans people and, you know, where they come in these debates and, yeah. you know, the role that they play. And if you define gender so kind of biologically and simply yeah. as based on what organs you have, then it makes sense that you kind of go... I know you don't define gender that way, but like that well, when yeah. that's gone, you're kind of like, oh, maybe do I? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely feel like womany all the time. Yeah. I always <laughs> have. Like, I love my femaleness and I love women, obviously, in, in loads <laughs> of different ways, you know, in platonic ways and less platonic ways. <laughs> um, and so then being like, oh... It's, it was just weird. It was just weird. And I think it's what's interesting to me is that clearly we don't have that conversation a lot because it happens to every woman who lives to an age beyond menopause. Yet I don't really hear that conversation. So yeah. that was that was an interesting experience. So I had that surgery also to ileostomy, which is like we have to basically like poo in a pouch attached to your torso for until they reverse it, if they can reverse it, which they were able to in my case. And then I recovered from that surgery. It was really, really difficult. I found out I was allergic to morphine, which was very hard because they were like, why are you like vomiting all the time after having this major abdominal surgery? So a lot of pain. God, it was just one thing after another. Yeah. And then I just started to get better. 
And then I had another operation to reverse the ileostomy. And then they like managed to remove all the tumour in my lymph nodes where it had gone into and all that kind of stuff. In terms of that, and I hate being asked this question, I'm going to ask you anyway. Yeah. How did it change you? It changed me most of all physically because well, yes. it like removed, you know, large elements of my digestive system and bowels. But the way you live your life? Um, it definitely made me like hyper empathetic. So I used to be like not a crier or anything. Now I cry like multiple times a day so it made me really I don't know I'm writing a book about empathy at the moment so that's a lot on my mind it definitely made me experience that it made me more panicky about things that I want to do in my life because I feel like I have limited time in some ways I was super lucky obviously I survived this thing that was really really serious in other ways I haven't been so lucky because I should be able to get out of cancer follow-up within five years unfortunately that's not going to be the case because every time I've gone back for my yearly checkup they've found precancerous nodes or whatever you want to call them growing in my bowel again so trying to figure out why this is happening and that means that I'm going to be in cancer follow-up for the rest of my life which means you know six monthly scans and yearly colonoscopies for the rest of my life that is really crap and it just feels like that shadows over me forever but you know that just makes me really panicky right it makes me really like scared of death yeah. <laughs> so which is something that I was weirdly getting really obsessed with before I was diagnosed. It's made me a little bit more carefree, I suppose. Less tolerant of people's bullshit. Mm. I remember saying to Rage and my housemate at the time when I was diagnosed, I was like, you know, I'm just like not dealing with people's crap anymore. If I have something to say, I'm just going to say it. And she was like, what were you doing before? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it has changed me. Massively. Yeah. Massively. It's a profound thing. And that's really weird because you think you're in control of how you're going to progress as a person. Mm -hmm. And you're going to curate your own experiences in your life. Yeah. And you're going to point yourself in these directions and and that's Mm -hmm. what you're going to do. And boy, is that bullshit. Yeah. I went to see, during treatment, I went to see that um, movie about Stephen Hawking. Oh, yeah. um, Theory of Everything. I lost my mind, like, absolutely, like, floods of tears, like, Mm. throughout the entire film. And it wasn't about the film. It was about the randomness of illness yeah. and how it can just come and smack you in the face out of nowhere. It can happen to anyone. It can happen at any time. Mm-hmm. So we really truly have no control. Yeah. And I think I'm still coming to terms with that and I probably will be for a long time. Yeah, I think embracing that though. It's kind of, in a way it's liberating because you go, okay, well I can't control that mm-hmm. and I have to just do shit now and enjoy my life. Yeah. But it I, doesn't unfortunately mean that you dob everything in and go traveling around the world. Yeah, I mean I think the realization of the futility of, of the things that you do want to do can be quite traumatic as well because you realise that you aren't significant and that lives are tossed aside all the time, yeah. you know, in, in stupid accidental ways and in war and in everything. And I find that very difficult, you know, that, that level of human suffering that people are encountering every day. I mm-hmm. find that really hard to reconcile. And all you can then try to do is, you know, use your privilege and your position to try and make things better for other people. Yeah. So that's what that's where my head is at. Okay. so before I let you go, what's your next thing? You're writing a book. Yeah, well, I, I've got two books on the go. An anthology. <laughs> Talk about using your time. I know, yeah. <laughs> I'm just writing the two books. Just writing the two books. No, um, I've an, th- an anthology on Repeal the Eighth, which mm-hmm. is out next spring on a publisher called Unbound, British publisher, which is amazing writers in it. There's like 
Sinead Gleeson and Anne Enright and Catelyn Moran and Louisa mm. Neal and Lisa McInerney and brilliant people. And then I'm working on another book as well that's a short non-fiction book about empathy. Mm. So I don't know when that's out because I haven't done enough on it yet. Great. Well, I can't wait to see more and more from you, Una Malali. Thank you so much. Thanks, Louise. The Collective 2FM.